This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com. Today's reading is by Chris Mitchell. The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, translated by Richard Crawley. Book Six, Chapter Eighteen the seventeenth year of the war, the Sicilian campaign, the affair of the Hermai, and the departure of the expedition. The same winter the Athenians resolved to sail again to Sicily, with a greater armament than that under Lachis and Eurymedon, and, if possible, to conquer the island, most of them being ignorant of its size and of the number of its inhabitants, Hellenic and barbarian, and of the fact that they were undertaking a war not much inferior to that against the Peloponnesians. For the voyage round Sicily in a merchantman is not far short of eight days, and yet, large as the island is, there are only two miles of sea to prevent its being mainland. It was settled originally as follows, and the people that occupied it are these. The earliest inhabitants spoken of in any part of the country are the Cyclopses and Lystrigenes, but I cannot tell of what race they were, or whence they came, or whither they went, and must leave my readers to what the poets have said of them, and to what may be generally known concerning them. The Sicanians appear to have been the next settlers, although they pretend to have been the first of all, and Aborigines. But the facts show that they were Iberians, driven by the Ligurians from the river Sicanus in Iberia. It was from then that the island, before called Trinacria, took its name of Sicania, and to the present day they inhabit the west of Sicily. On the fall of Ilium, some of the Trojans escaped from the Achaeans, came in ships to Sicily, and settled next to the Sicanians under the general name of the Elamai, their towns being called Eryx and Agesta. With them settled some of the Phocians, carried on their way from Troy by a storm, first to Libya, and afterwards from thence to Sicily. The Sicels crossed over to Sicily from their first home in Italy, flying from the Opicans, as tradition says, and as seems not unlikely, upon rafts, having watched till the wind set down the strait to effect the passage, although perhaps they may have sailed over in some other way. Even at the present day there are still Sicels in Italy, and the country got its name of Italy from Italus, a king of the Sicels, so called. These went with a great host to Sicily, defeated the Sicanians in battle, and forced them to remove to the south and west of the island, which thus came to be called Sicily instead of Sicania, and after they crossed over, continued to enjoy the richest parts of the country for near three hundred years before any Hellenes came to Sicily. Indeed, they still hold the center and north of the island. 
There were also Phoenicians living all round Sicily, who had occupied promontories upon the sea coasts and the islets adjacent for the purpose of trading with the Sicels. But when the Hellenes began to arrive in considerable numbers by sea, the Phoenicians abandoned most of their stations, and, drawing together, took up their abode in Motai, Soloius, and Panormus, near the Elamai, partly because they confided in their alliance, and also because these are the nearest points for the voyage between Carthage and Sicily. These were the barbarians in Sicily, settled as I have said. Of the Hellenes, the first to arrive were Chalcidians from Euboea, with Thucles their founder. They founded Naxos, and built the altar to Apollo Archegetes, which now stands outside the town, and upon which the deputies for the game sacrifice before sailing from Sicily. Syracuse was founded the year afterwards by Archias, one of the Heraclides from Corinth, who began by driving out the Sicels from the island upon which the inner city now stands, though it is no longer surrounded by water. In process of time the outer town also was taken within the walls and became populous. Meanwhile, Thuclus and the Chalcidians set out from Naxos in the fifth year after the foundation of Syracuse, and drove out the Sicels by arms and founded Leontini and afterwards Catana, the Catanians themselves choosing Evarchus as their founder. About the same time Lamus arrived in Sicily with a colony from Megara and after founding a place called Trotilus beyond the river Pantacius, and afterwards leaving it and for a short while joining the Chalcidians at Leontini, was driven out by them and founded Thapsus. After his death his companions were driven out of Thapsus, and founded a place called the Hiblaean Megara. Hiblon, a Sicel king, having given up the place and inviting them thither. Here they lived two hundred and forty-five years, after which they were expelled from the city and the country by the Syracusan tyrant Galo. Before their expulsion, however, a hundred years after they had settled there, they sent out Pamilus and founded Salinas, he having come from their mother country Megara to join them in its foundation. Gela was founded by Antiphemus from Rhodes and Antimus from Crete, who joined in leading a colony thither, in the forty-fifth year after the foundation of Syracuse. The town took its name from the river Gelas, the place where the citadel now stands, and which was first fortified, being called Lindii. The institutions which they adopted were Dorian, Near one hundred and eighty years after the foundation of Gela, the Geloans founded Acragus, also called Agrigentum, so called from the river of that name, and made Aristinus and Pistilus their founders, giving their own institutions to the colony. Zancle was originally founded by pirates from Cumae, the Chalcidian town in the country of the Opicans. Afterwards, however, large numbers came from Chalcis and the rest of Euboea, and helped to people the place, 
the founders being Periares and Cretamenes from Cumae and Chalcis respectively. It first had the name of Zancle given it by the Sicels, because the place is shaped like a sickle, which the Sicels call a Zanclon, but upon the original settlers being afterwards expelled by some Samians and other Ionians who landed in Sicily flying from the Medes, and the Samians in their turn not long afterwards by Anaxilus, tyrant of Regium, the town was by him colonized with a mixed population, and its name changed to Messina, after his old country. Hymera was founded from Zancle by Euclides, Simus, and Sacon, most of those who went to the colony being Chalcidians, though they were joined by some exiles from Syracuse, defeated in a civil war called the Miletidae. The language was a mixture of Chalcidian and Doric, but the institutions which prevailed were the Chalcidians. Acri and Casmini were founded by the Syracusans. Acri seventy years after Syracuse, Casmini nearly twenty after Acri. Camarina was first founded by the Syracusans, close upon a hundred and thirty-five years after the building of Syracuse its founders being Daxon and Menacalus. But the Camerinians, being expelled by arms by the Syracusans for having revolted, Hippocrates, tyrant of Gela, some time later receiving their land in ransom for some Syracusan prisoners, resettled Camerina, himself acting as its founder. Lastly, it was again depopulated by Gelo, and settled once more for the third time by the Geloans. Such is the list of peoples, Hellenic and barbarian, inhabiting Sicily, and such the magnitude of the island which the Athenians were now bent upon invading, being ambitious in real truth of conquering the whole, although they had also the specious design of succoring their kindred and other allies in the island but they were especially incited by envoys from Agesta, who had come to Athens and invoked their aid more urgently than ever. The Egestaeans had gone to war with their neighbors, the Selenuntines, upon questions of marriage and disputed territory, and the Selenuntines had procured the alliance of the Syracusans and pressed Agesta hard by land and sea. The Aegisteans now reminded the Athenians of the alliance made in the time of Lachis, during the former Leontine War, and begged them to send a fleet to their aid, and among a number of other considerations urged as a capital argument that if the Syracusans were allowed to go unpunished for their depopulation of the Leontini, to ruin the allies still left to Athens in Sicily, and to get the whole power of the island into their hands, there would be a danger of their one day coming with a large force, as Dorians, to the aid of their Dorian brethren, and as colonists, to the aid of the Peloponnesians who had sent them out, and joining these in pulling down the Athenian empire. The Athenians would, therefore, do well to unite with the allies still left to them, and to make a stand against the Syracusans, especially as they, 
the Aegisthans, were prepared to furnish money sufficient for the war. The Athenians, hearing these arguments constantly repeated in their assemblies by the Aegisthans and their supporters, voted first to send envoys to Agesta to see if there was really the money that they talked of in the treasury and temples, and at the same time to ascertain in what posture was the war with the Selenuntines. The envoys of the Athenians were accordingly dispatched to Sicily. The same winter, the Lacedaemonians and their allies, the Corinthians excepted, marched into the Argive territory and ravaged a small part of the land, and took some yokes of oxen and carried off some corn. They also settled the Argive exiles at Ornei, and left them a few soldiers taken from the rest of the army. And after making a truce for a certain while, according to which neither Orneatai nor Argives were to injure each other's territory, returned home with the army. Not long afterwards the Athenians came with thirty ships and six hundred heavy infantry, and the Argives joining them with all their forces, marched out and besieged the men at Ornei for one day. But the garrison escaped by night, the besiegers having bivouacked some way off. The next day the Argives, discovering it, raised Ornei to the ground and went back again after which the Athenians went home in their ships. Meanwhile, the Athenians took by sea to Methone on the Macedonian border some cavalry of their own and the Macedonian exiles that were at Athens, and plundered the country of Perdiccas. Upon this, the Lacedaemonians sent to the Thracian Chalcidians, who had a truce with Athens from one ten days to another, urging them to join Perdiccas in the war, which they refused to do. And the winter ended, and with it ended the sixteenth year of this war, of which Thucydides is the historian. Early in the spring of the following summer, the Athenian envoys arrived from Sicily, and the Aegisthians with them, bringing sixty talents of uncoined silver as a month's pay for sixty ships which they were to ask to have sent them. The Athenians held an assembly, and, after hearing from the Egistaeans and their own envoys a report, as attractive as it was untrue, upon the state of affairs generally, and in particular as to the money, of which, it was said, there was an abundance in the temples and the treasury, voted to send sixty ships to Sicily, under the command of Alcibiades, son of Clinius, Nicias, son of Niceratus, and Lamachus, son of Xenophanes, who were appointed with full powers. They were to help the Aegisthians against the Selenuntines, to restore Leontini upon gaining any advantage in the war, and to order all other matters in Sicily as they should deem best for the interests of Athens. Five days after this, a second assembly was held, to consider the speediest means of equipping the ships, and to vote whatever else might be required by the generals for the expedition. And Nicias, who had been chosen to the command against his will, and who thought that the state was not well advised, 
but upon slight aid a specious pretext was aspiring to the conquest of the whole of Sicily, a great matter to achieve, came forward in the hope of diverting the Athenians from the enterprise, and gave them the following counsel. Although this assembly was convened to consider the preparations to be made for sailing to Sicily, I think, notwithstanding, that we have still this question to examine, whether it be better to send out the ships at all, and that we ought not to give so little consideration to a matter of such moment, or let ourselves be persuaded by foreigners into undertaking a war with which we have nothing to do. And yet, individually, I gain in honour by such a course, and fear as little as other men for my person, not that I think a man need be any the worse citizen for taking some thought for his own person and estate. On the contrary, such a man would for his own sake desire the prosperity of his country more than others. Nevertheless, as I have never spoken against my convictions to gain honour, I shall not begin to do so now, but shall say what I think best." Against your character, any words of mine would be weak enough if I were to advise your keeping what you have got and not risking what is actually yours for advantages which are dubious in themselves and which you may or may not attain. I will, therefore, content myself with showing that your ardor is out of season and your ambition not easy of accomplishment." I affirm, then, that you leave many enemies behind you here to go yonder and bring more back with you. You imagine, perhaps, that the treaty which you have made can be trusted, a treaty that will continue to exist nominally, as long as you keep quiet, for nominal it has become, owing to the practices of certain men here and at Sparta, but which in the event of a serious reverse in any quarter would not delay our enemies a moment in attacking us. First, because the convention was forced upon them by disaster and was less honorable to them than to us, and secondly, because in this very convention there are many points that are still disputed. Again, some of the most powerful states have never yet accepted the arrangement at all. Some of these are at open war with us. Others, as the Lacedaemonians do not yet move, are restrained by truces renewed every ten days, and it is only too probable that if they found our power divided, as we are hurrying to divide it, they would attack us vigorously with the Siceliots whose alliance they would have in the past valued as they would that of few others. A man ought, therefore, to consider these points, and not to think of running risks with a country placed so critically, or of grasping at another empire before we have secured the one we have already. For in fact the Thracian Chalcidians have been all these years in revolt from us without being yet subdued, and others on the continents yield us, but a doubtful obedience. Meanwhile the Aegisteans, our allies, have been wronged, and we run to help them while the rebels who have so long wronged us still wait for punishment. 
and yet the latter, if brought under, might be kept under, while the Sicilians, even if conquered, are too far off and too numerous to be ruled without difficulty. Now it is folly to go against men who could not be kept under even if conquered, while failure would leave us in the very different position from that which we occupied before the enterprise. The Siceliots, again, to take them as they are at present, in the event of a Syracusan conquest, the favorite bugbear of the Aegisthians, would to my thinking be even less dangerous to us than before. At present they might possibly come here as separate states for love of Lacedaemon. In the other case one empire would scarcely attack another, for after joining the Peloponnesians to overthrow ours, they could only expect to see the same hands overthrow their own in the same way. The Hellenes in Sicily would fear us most if we never went there at all, and next to this, if, after displaying our power, we went away again as soon as possible. We all know that that which is farthest off, and the reputation of which can least be tested, is the object of admiration, and the least reverse they would at once begin to look down upon us, and would join our enemies here against us. You have yourselves experienced this with regard to the Lacedaemonians and their allies, whom your unexpected success, as compared with what you feared at first, has made you suddenly despise, tempting you further to aspire to the conquest of Sicily." Instead, however, of being puffed up by the misfortunes of your adversaries, you ought to think of breaking their spirit before giving yourselves up to confidence, and to understand that the one thought awakened in the Lacedaemonians by their disgrace is how they may even now, if possible, overthrow us and repair their dishonor. Inasmuch as military reputation is their oldest and chiefest study, our struggle, therefore, if we are wise, will not be for the barbarian Aegisthians in Sicily, but how to defend ourselves most effectually against the oligarchical machinations of Lacedaemon. We should also remember that we are but now enjoying some respite from the great pestilence and from war, to the no small benefit of our estates and persons, and that it is right to employ these at home on our own behalf, instead of using them on behalf of these exiles whose interest it is to lie as fairly as they can, who do nothing but talk themselves and leave the danger to others, and who, if they succeed, will show no proper gratitude, and if they fail, will drag down their friends with them. And if there be any man here, overjoyed at being chosen to command, who urges you to make the expedition merely for ends of his own, especially if he be still too young to command, who seeks to be admired for his stud of horses, but on account of its heavy expenses hopes for some profit from his appointment, do not allow such a one to maintain his private splendor at his country's risk. But remember that such persons injure the public fortune while they squander their own, 
and that this is a matter of importance, and not for a young man to decide, or hastily to take in hand. When I see such persons now sitting here at the side of that same individual, and summoned by him, alarm seizes me, and I, in my turn, summon any of the older men that have such a person sitting next to him not to let himself be shamed down for fear of being thought a coward if he do not vote for war, but remembering how rarely success is got by wishing, and how often by forecast, to leave to them the mad dream of conquest, and as a true lover of his country, now threatened by the greatest danger in its history, to hold up his hand on the other side, to vote that the Siceliots be left in the limits now existing between us, limits of which no one can complain, the Ionian Sea for the coasting voyage, and the Sicilian across the open main, to enjoy their own possessions and to settle their own quarrels, that the Aegisteans, for their part, be told to end by themselves with the Selenuntines the war which they began without consulting the Athenians, and that for the future we do not enter into alliance, as we have been used to do so, with people whom we must help in their need, and who can never help us in ours. And you, Pritanus, if you think it your duty to care for the commonwealth, and if you wish to show yourself a good citizen, put the question to the vote, and take a second time the opinions of the Athenians. If you are afraid to move the question again, consider that a violation of the law cannot carry any prejudice with so many abettors, that you will be the physician of your misguided city, and that the virtue of men in office is briefly this, to do their country as much good as they can, or in any case no harm that they can avoid. Such were the words of Nicias. Most of the Athenians that came forward spoke in favor of the expedition, and of not annulling what had been voted, although some spoke on the other side. By far the warmest advocate of the expedition was, however, Alcibiades, son of Clinius, who wished to thwart Nicias both as his political opponent, and also because of the attack he had made upon him in his speech and who was, besides, exceedingly ambitious of a command by which he hoped to reduce Sicily and Carthage, and personally to gain in wealth and reputation by means of his successes. For the position he held among the citizens led him to indulge his tastes beyond what his real means would bear, both in keeping horses and in the rest of his expenditure and this later on had not a little to do with the ruin of the Athenian state. Alarmed at the greatness of his license in his own life and habits, and of the ambition which he showed in all things soever that he undertook, the mass of the people set him down as a pretender to the tyranny, and became his enemies, and although publicly his conduct of the war was as good as could be desired, individually his habits gave offence to every one, and caused them to commit affairs to other hands, and thus before long to ruin the city. 
Meanwhile, he now came forward and gave the following advice to the Athenians. Athenians, I have a better right to command than others. I must begin with this, as Nicias has attacked me, and at the same time I believe myself to be worthy of it. The things for which I am abused bring fame to my ancestors and to myself, and to the country prophet besides. The Hellenes, after expecting to see our city ruined by the war, concluded it to be even greater than it really is, by reason of the magnificence with which I represented it at the Olympic Games, when I sent into the lists seven chariots, a number never before entered by any private person, and won the first prize, and was second and fourth and took care to have everything else in a style worthy of my victory. Custom regards such displays as honorable, and they cannot be made without leaving behind them an impression of power. Again, any splendor that I may have exhibited at home in providing choruses or otherwise is naturally envied by my fellow citizens, but in the eyes of foreigners has an air of strength as in the other instance. And this is no useless folly, when a man at his own private cost benefits not himself only, but his city. Nor is it unfair that he who prides himself on his position should refuse to be upon an equality with the rest. He who is badly off has his misfortunes all to himself, and as we do not see men courted in adversity, on the like principle a man ought to accept the insolence of prosperity, or else let him first mete out equal measure to all, and then demand to have it meted out to him. What I know is that persons of this kind and all others that have attained to any distinction, although they may be unpopular in their lifetime in their relations with their fellow-men, and especially with their equals, leave to posterity the desire of claiming connection with them even without any ground, and are vaunted by the country to which they belonged, not as strangers or ill-doers, but as fellow-countrymen and heroes. Such are my aspirations, and however I am abused for them in private, the question is whether any one manages public affairs better than I do. Having united the most powerful states of Peloponnese, without great danger or expense to you, I compelled the Lacedaemonians to stake their all upon the issue of a single day at Mantinea, and although victorious in the battle, they have never since fully recovered confidence." Thus did my youth and so-called monstrous folly find fitting arguments to deal with the power of the Peloponnesians, and by its ardor win their confidence and prevail. And do not be afraid of my youth now, but while I am still in its flower, and Nicias appears fortunate, avail yourselves to the utmost of the services of us both. Neither rescind your resolution to sail to Sicily, on the ground that you would be going to attack a greater power. The cities in Sicily are peopled with motley rabbles, and easily change their institutions and adopt new ones in their steed. 
and consequently the inhabitants, being without any feeling of patriotism, are not provided with arms for their persons, and have not regularly established themselves on the land. Every man thinks that either by fair words or by party strife he can obtain something at the public expense, and then in the event of a catastrophe settle in some other country, and makes his preparations accordingly. From a mob like this you need not look for either unanimity in counsel or concert in action, but they will probably one by one come in as they get a fair offer, especially if they are torn by civil strife as we are told. Moreover, the Siceliots have not so many heavy infantry as they boast, just as the Hellenes generally did not prove so numerous as each state reckoned itself, but Hellas greatly overestimated their numbers, and has hardly had an adequate force of heavy infantry throughout this war. The states in Sicily, therefore, from all that I can hear, will be found as I say, and I have not pointed out all our advantages, for we shall have the help of many barbarians, who from their hatred of the Syracusans will join us in attacking them, nor will the powers at home prove any hindrance if you judge rightly. Our fathers, with these very adversaries, which it is said we shall now leave behind us when we sail, and the Mede as their enemy as well, were able to win the empire, depending solely upon their superiority at sea. The Peloponnesians had never so little hope against us as at present, and let them be ever so sanguine, although strong enough to invade our country even if we stay at home, they can never hurt us with their navy, as we leave one of our own behind us that is a match for them. In this state of things, what reason can we give to ourselves for holding back, or what excuse can we offer to our allies in Sicily for not helping them? They are our confederates, and we are bound to assist them, without objecting that they have not assisted us. We did not take them into alliance to have them to help us in Hellas, but that they might so annoy our enemies in Sicily as to prevent them from coming over here and attacking us. It is thus that empire has been won, both by us and by all others that have held it, by a constant readiness to support all, whether barbarians or Hellenes, that invite assistance, since if all were to keep quiet and to pick and choose whom they ought to assist, we should make but few new conquests, and should imperil those we have already won." Men do not rest content with parrying the attacks of a superior, but often strike the first blow to prevent the attack being made, and we cannot fix the exact point at which our empire shall stop. We have reached a position in which we must not be content with retaining, but must scheme to extend it, for if we cease to rule others, we are in danger of being ruled ourselves, nor can you look at inaction from the same point of view as others, unless you are prepared to change your habits and make them like theirs. Be convinced, then, that we shall augment our power at home by this adventure abroad, and let us make the expedition, and so humble the pride of the Peloponnesians by sailing off to Sicily, and letting them see how little we care for the peace that we are now enjoying. 
and at the same time we shall either become masters, as we very easily may, of the whole of Hellas through the accession of the Sicilian Hellenes, or in any case ruin the Syracusans, to the no small advantage of ourselves and our allies. The faculty of staying if successful, or of returning, will be secured to us by our navy, as we shall be superior at sea to all the Siceliots put together. And do not let the do-nothing policy which Nicias advocates, or his setting of the young against the old, turn you from your purpose, but in the good old fashion by which our fathers, old and young together, by their united counsels brought our affairs to their present height, do you endeavour still to advance them, understanding that neither youth nor old age can do anything the one without the other, but that levity, sobriety, and deliberate judgment are strongest when united, and that, by sinking into inaction, the city, like everything else, will wear itself out, and its skill in everything decay, while each fresh struggle will give it fresh experience, and make it more use to defend itself not in word but in deed. In short, my conviction is that a city not inactive by nature could not choose a quicker way to ruin itself than by suddenly adopting such a policy, and that the safest rule of life is to take one's character and institutions for better and for worse, and to live up to them as closely as one can. Such were the words of Alcibiades. After hearing him and the Aegisteans and some Leontine exiles, who came forward reminding them of their oaths and imploring their assistance, the Athenians became more eager for the expedition than before. Nicias, perceiving that it would be now useless to try to deter them by the old line of argument, but thinking that he might perhaps alter their resolution by the extravagance of his estimates, came forward a second time, and spoke as follows. I see, Athenians, that you are thoroughly bent upon the expedition, and therefore hope that all will turn out as we wish, and proceed to give you my opinion at the present juncture. From all that I hear, we are going against cities that are great and not subject to one another, or in need of change, so as to be glad to pass from enforced servitude to an easier condition, or in the least likely to accept our rule in exchange for freedom. And, to take only the Hellenic towns, they are very numerous for one island. Besides Naxos and Catana, which I expect to join us from their connection with Leontini, there are seven others armed at all points just like our own power, particularly Salinas and Syracuse, the chief objects of our expedition. These are full of heavy infantry, archers, and darters, have galleys in abundance and crowds to man them. They have also money, partly in the hands of private persons, partly in the temples at Salinas, and at Syracuse first fruits from some of the barbarians as well. But their chief advantage over us lies in the number of their horses, and in the fact that they grow their corn at home instead of importing it. Against a power of this kind it will not do to have merely a weak naval armament 
but we shall want also a large land army to sail with us if we are to do anything worthy of our ambition and are not to be shut off from the country by a numerous cavalry especially if the city should take alarm and combine and we should be left without friends except the Aegisteans, to furnish us with horse to defend ourselves with it would be disgraceful to have to retire under compulsion or to send back for reinforcements owing to want of reflection at first we must therefore start from home with a competent force seeing that we are going to sail far from our country and upon an expedition not like any which you have undertaken without the current quality of allies among your subject states here in hellas where any additional supplies needed can be easily drawn from the friendly territory but we are cutting ourselves off and going to a land entirely strange from which during four months in winter it is not even easy for a messenger to get to athens i think therefore that we ought to take great numbers of heavy infantry both from athens and from our allies and not merely from our subjects but also any we may be able to get for love or for money in peloponnese and great numbers also of archers and slingers to make head against the sicilian horse meanwhile we must have an overwhelming superiority at sea to enable us the more easily to carry in what we want and we must take our own corn in merchant vessels that is to say wheat and parched barley and bakers from the mills compelled to serve for pay in the proper proportion in order that in case of our being weather-bound the armament may not want provisions as it is not every city that will be able to entertain numbers like ours we must also provide ourselves with everything else as far as we can so as not to be dependent upon others and above all we must take with us from home as much money as possible as the sums talked of as ready at Egesta are readier, you may be sure, in talk than in any other way. Indeed, even if we leave Athens with a force not only equal to that of the enemy except in the number of heavy infantry in the field, but even at all points superior to him, we shall still find it difficult to conquer Sicily and save ourselves, we must not disguise from ourselves that we go to found a city among strangers and enemies and that he who undertakes such an enterprise should be prepared to become master of his country the first day he lands or in failing this to find everything hostile to him fearing this and knowing that we shall have need of much good counsel and more good fortune a hard matter for mortal man to aspire to i wish as far as may be to make myself independent of fortune before sailing and when i do sail to be as safe as a strong force can make me this i believe to be surest for the country at large and safest for us who are to go on the expedition if any one thinks differently i resign to him my command with this nicias concluded thinking that he should either disgust the athenians by the magnitude of the undertaking or 
if obliged, to sail on the expedition, would thus do so in the safest way possible. The Athenians, however, far from having their taste for the voyage taken away by the burdensomeness of the preparations, became more eager for it than ever, and just the contrary took place of what Nicias had thought, as it was held that he had given good advice, and that the expedition would be the safest in the world. All alike fell in love with the enterprise. The older men thought that they would either subdue the places against which they were to sail, or at all events, with so large a force, meet with no disaster. Those in the prime of life felt a longing for foreign sights and spectacles, and had no doubt that they should come safe home again, while the idea of the common people and the soldiery was to earn wages at the moment, and make conquests that would supply a never-ending fund of pay for the future. With this enthusiasm of the majority, the few that liked it not, feared to appear unpatriotic by holding up their hands against it, and so kept quiet. At last one of the Athenians came forward and called upon Nicias, and told him that he ought not to make excuses or put them off, but say at once before them all what forces the Athenians should vote him. Upon this he said, not without reluctance, that he would advise upon that matter more at leisure with his colleagues, as far, however, as he could see at present, they must sail with at least one hundred galleys, the Athenians providing as many transports as they might determine, and sending for others from the allies, not less than five thousand heavy infantry in all, Athenians and allies, and if possible more, and the rest of the armament in proportion, archers from home and from Crete, and slingers, and whatever else might seem desirable being got ready by the generals and taken with them. Upon hearing this, the Athenians at once voted that the generals should have full powers in the matter of the numbers of the army and of the expedition generally, to do as they judged best for the interests of Athens. After this the preparations began, messages being sent to the allies and the rolls drawn up at home and as the city had just recovered from the plague in the long war, and a number of young men had grown up and capital had accumulated by reason of the truce, everything was the more easily provided. In the midst of these preparations, all the stone hermai in the city of Athens, that is to say, the customary square figures, so common in the doorways of private houses and temples, had in one night most of them their fares mutilated. No one knew who had done it, but large public rewards were offered to find the authors, and it was further voted that any one who knew of any other act of impiety, having been committed, should come and give information without fear of consequences, whether he were citizen, alien, or slave. The matter was taken up the more seriously, as it was thought to be ominous for the expedition, and part of a conspiracy to bring about a revolution and to upset the democracy. Information was given accordingly by some resident aliens and body servants, 
not about the Hermai, but about some previous mutilations of other images perpetrated by young men in a drunken frolic, and of mock celebrations of the mysteries, averred to take place in private houses. Alcibiades, being implicated in this charge, it was taken hold of by those who could least endure him, because he stood in the way of their obtaining the undisturbed direction of the people, and who thought that if he were once removed the first place would be theirs. These accordingly magnified the matter and loudly proclaimed that the affair of the mysteries and the mutilation of the Hermai were part and parcel of a scheme to overthrow the democracy, and that nothing of all this had been done without Alcibiades, the proofs alleged being the general and undemocratic license of his life and habits. Alcibiades repelled on the spot the charges in question, and also, before going on the expedition, the preparations for which were now complete, offered to stand his trial that it might be seen whether he was guilty of the acts imputed to him, desiring to be punished if he was found guilty, but, if acquitted, to take the command. Meanwhile, he protested against their receiving slanders against him in his absence, and begged them rather to put him to death at once if he were guilty, and pointed out the imprudence of sending him out at the head of so large an army, with so serious a charge still undecided. But his enemies feared that he would have the army for him if he were tried immediately, and that the people might relent in favor of the man whom they already caressed as the cause of the Argives and some of the Mantineans joining in the expedition, and did their utmost to get this proposition rejected, putting forward other orators, who said that he ought at present to sail and not delay the departure of the army, and be tried on his return within a fixed number of days, their plan being to have him sent for and brought home for trial upon some graver charge, which they would the more easily get up in his absence. Accordingly, it was decreed that he should set sail. After this, the departure for Sicily took place, it being now about midsummer. Most of the allies, with the corn transports and the smaller craft and the rest of the expedition, had already received orders to muster at Corsaira, to cross the Ionian Sea, and thence in a body to the Iapygian promontory. But the Athenians themselves, and such of their allies as happened to be with them, went down to Piraeus upon a day appointed at daybreak, and began to man the ships for putting out to sea. With them also went down the whole population, one may say, of the city, both citizens and foreigners, the inhabitants of the country each escorting those that belonged to them, their friends, their relatives, or their sons, with hopes and lamentation upon their way, as they thought of the conquests which they hoped to make, or of the friends whom they might never see again, considering the long voyage which they were going to make from their country. Indeed, at this moment, when they were now upon the point of parting from one another, the danger came more home to them than when they voted for the expedition, although the strength of the armament, and the profuse provision which they remarked in every department, was a sight that could not but comfort them. 
as for the foreigners and the rest of the crowd, they simply went to see a sight worth looking at and passing all belief. Indeed, this armament that first sailed out was by far the most costly and splendid Hellenic force that had ever been sent out by a single city up to that time. In mere number of ships and heavy infantry that against Epidaurus under Pericles, and the same when going against Potidaea under Hagnon, was not inferior, containing as it did four thousand Athenian heavy infantry, three hundred horse, and one hundred galleys, accompanied by fifty Lesbian and Chian vessels, and many allies besides. But these were sent upon a short voyage, and with scanty equipment. The present expedition was formed in contemplation of a long term of service by land and sea alike, and was furnished with ships and troops so as to be ready for either as required. The fleet had been elaborately equipped at great cost to the captains in the state, the treasury giving a drachma a day to each seaman, and providing empty ships, sixty men of war, and forty transport, and manning these with the best crews obtainable while the captains gave a bounty in addition to the pay from the treasury to the thranite and crews generally, besides spending lavishly upon figureheads and equipments, and one and all making the utmost exertions to enable their own ships to excel in beauty and fast sailing. Meanwhile, the land forces had been picked from the best muster-rolls, and vied with each other in paying great attention to their arms and personal accoutrements. From this resulted not only a rivalry amongst themselves in different departments, but an idea among the rest of the Hellenes that it was more a display of power and resources than an armament against an enemy. For if any one had counted up the public expenditure of the state, and the private outlay of individuals, that is to say, the sums which the state had already spent upon the expedition, and was sending out in the hands of the generals, and those which individuals had expended upon their personal outfit, or as captains of galleys had laid out and were still to lay out upon their vessels, and if he had added to this the journey money which each was likely to have provided himself with, independent of pay from the treasury, for a voyage of such length, and what the soldiers or traders took with them for the purpose of exchange, it would have been found that many talents in all were being taken out of the city. Indeed, the expedition became not less famous for its wonderful boldness and for the splendor of its appearance than for its overwhelming strength as compared with the peoples against whom it was directed, and for the fact that this was the longest passage from home hitherto attempted, and the most ambitious in its objects considering the resources of those who undertook it. The ships being now manned, and everything put on board with which they meant to sail, the trumpet commanded silence, and the prayers customary before putting out to sea were offered, not in each ship by itself, but by all together to the voice of a herald, and bowls of wine were mixed through all the armament, and libations made by the soldiers and their officers in gold and silver goblets. In their prayers joined also the crowds on shore, the citizens and all others that wished them well. 
The hymn sung and the libations finished, they put out to sea, and first out in column, then raced each other as far as Aegina, and so hastened to reach Corsaira, where the rest of the allied forces were also assembling. Here ends Book Six, Chapter Eighteen.